Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Dozens of Northern Cheyenne youth just completed a 400-mile run from Nebraska to Montana to honor relatives killed in what's known as the Fort Robinson Massacre. The run is just one way tribal members work to remember and heal the tragedy 145 years ago. A monument and trail are also dedicated to promote healing. We'll look back on the events from the Cheyenne perspective and learn more about efforts to educate others. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Guatemala has a new president despite efforts by the government system, which tried to prevent Bernardo Arevalo from taking office. He was sworn in this week, elected in August, with heavy support of indigenous groups across the country. But his win was followed by months of electoral drama. Indigenous people have backed the reformists. They even held protests and blockades. Arevalo campaigned in heavily indigenous areas, calling for an end to racism and marginalization of Maya and other indigenous people people. In August, Maya anthropologist Irma Alicia Vazquez Nimatu shared perspective. She says indigenous people have high hopes for a different country, where Maya and other indigenous groups are not treated as second-class citizens. So this is the opportunity to change the reality, to stop the migration to the United States. Uh, this is also a special moment for indigenous women. Indigenous women in Guatemala have been working very hard for justice. In his inauguration speech, Arevalo acknowledged the country's indigenous people. The Associated Press reports indigenous leaders are urging him not to forget about the support they've shown and to keep promises to provide basic needs to their people. For Alaska State Troopers and other police departments across the North, the fur trapper hat is iconic. The State Department of Public Safety buys about 50 of them a year and is looking for a new supply. KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports. For Alaska State Troopers, the fur trapper hat is more than just head cover. Our uniform is rich in history. Austin McDaniel with the Alaska Department of Public Safety says the fur hats have been part of the uniform for decades. So we're looking for a black hat that's made of otter or beaver fur. A skull cap and ear covers is insulated up to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. The hats must also be lined with fleas, both windproof and waterproof, and unisex. McDaniel says about half of the troopers prefer to have their hats made locally. Earl Samuelson, a retired trooper from Nepuskiak in southwest Alaska, says after more than three decades with the department, he went through about five hats. He still volunteers with the Bethel Search and Rescue Team, so a good hat is still important. you got to have a really extreme cold weather hat. Samuelson is Yupik and says most of his hats, which are called Malachayaks, have been made by family, so they fit perfectly. They know that the tiniest leak can lead to frostbite. Samuelson says troopers want that same snug fit, so they often turn to native skin sewers. He also believes the hats are a source of pride for troopers. People ask you, well, who made your cap? And you say, so-and-so 
so-and-so. Samuelson says most troopers seem to prefer hats made out of seal skin because they're light yet still warm and waterproof. But he believes beaver fur provides the best protection. As for the state, its request for proposals has an unusual provision. It wants prospective hat makers to send two samples subject to a 15-day test. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. Cherokee actor Wes Studi is a guest on the PBS television show Finding Your Roots. The episode Fathers and Sons airs Tuesday night with Studi and actor LeVar Burton. Both men grew up without their fathers and have questions about their family trees. Finding Your Roots is in its 10th season, hosted by Professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. The show uses DNA technology and detective work to help guests learn about their family's past, often answering decades-old questions, uncovering mysteries, and telling stories of unknown ancestors. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Fry bread, that's the message. Support by Val's Fry Bread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Fry bread that will take you home, available wherever you live. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The annual Fort Robinson Spiritual Run just wrapped up in Montana. The event, crossing some 400 miles in bitter winter conditions, honors northern Cheyenne ancestors who were killed by U.S. soldiers 145 years ago. Organizers want to keep the memory of the original skirmish alive, but they are also mindful of changing the long-standing narrative that those who fled the unbearable conditions at Fort Robinson in January 1879 were fugitives of justice. Today we'll hear about the modern commemoration of a pivotal point in Cheyenne history. We'll also recount what tribal members say happened that day and the events leading up to it. You can join us. Tell us about reclaiming the history of your tribe. How do you honor important tribal historical events? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. We've got the phone lines open now and are waiting for your comments and questions. 1-800-996-2848. In Helena, Montana, we're joined by Jerry Robinson. He's an author and historian, and he is Northern Cheyenne. Hello, Jerry. Welcome back to NAC. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Jerry. Also in Lame Deer, excuse me, in Lame Deer, Montana, is Lynette Tubulls. She's the co-founder and executive director of the Yellowbird Lifeway Center and coordinator of the Fort Robinson Spiritual Run. She is Oglala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. Hello, and welcome back to NAC as well, Annette. Good morning, and thank you for um, inviting us to be on today. Good morning to you as well. And joining us now from Northern California is Denise Loiso. 
She's an educator and author of the book Northern Cheyenne Ledger Art by Fort Robinson Breakout Survivors. She has Delaware heritage. Hello, Denise. Thank you for joining us as well. Thanks so much for honoring this story. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that we have all of our guests on the line right now. And Jerry, I'd like for you to please start us off with some historical context. Why were Cheyenne warriors and others being held at Fort Robinson in the late 1870s? Well, thank you, Sean. Well, um, they were actually, the, the band that was held there was actually part of a larger band that had left uh, Indian Territory, Darlington Agency down in Indian Territory uh, in September um, of that same year. Um, and they had left uh, the Darlington Agency because um, th they were essentially dying. Uh, from measles, malaria, and starvation. Uh, this was uh, not their, what they considered um, their uh, home agency. They, uh, by the 1868 treaty, were um, uh, allowed to uh, remain. They, they persisted in, or insisted that the 1868 treaty allowed them to remain in the North Country around the Black Hills which they considered their homeland. And um, um, after the uh, fight at Little Bighorn, there was another larger attack on the um, main camp, winter camp of the Northern Cheyenne that essentially drove them into the, uh, to the agencies. And once the, this band uh, under Chiefs Little Wolf and Morningstar uh, went into the agency at uh, at then Camp Robinson at the Red Cloud Agency. Um, it was determined that they would be sent south. And that was in 1877, May of 1877. They were told if they went down there for a year that they would be, uh, and they didn't like it, they would be allowed to come back home. And once they got down there, they realized that that promise was not going to be kept. And so on September Ninth, the night of September 9th, 1879, uh, they left anyway. And they, they came north um, uh, up through out of uh, Indian ter territory uh, through Kansas into Nebraska. And they split. Once they crossed the Platte River, they split into two bands. Uh, one was under uh, uh, Morningstar and the other was under Little Wolf. And the, the band that was with Morningstar were captured uh, in the middle of a, a snowstorm in the Sandhills, and they were brought to Fort Robinson in October of 1878. They had been there for about two and a half months uh, before they were told that they were going to be sent south again. And that kind of sets the, the stage for um, what happened you know, on January 9th of 1879. Now, Jerry, some clear, uh, just to be clear here, Morningstar, uh, also known as Chief Dullknife? Correct. Morningstar is his Cheyenne name. Uh, I, I, I personally, I refer to him as Morningstar. Uh, Dullknife uh, was a uh, name that was given to him by his Lakota brother-in-laws. And it, history knows him as Dullknife. Um, and it, I, I may be confusing people when I refer to him as Morningstar, but that's just a, a, a personal commitment of mine uh, sure. to honor him with his, uh, with his Northern Cheyenne name. All right. 
Jerry, thank you for that clarification. So, okay, so this group of uh, of Cheyenne warriors and others, they're here at Fort Robinson. So what exactly were the conditions there? What was the nature of them being held there? Um, and then what prompted uh, them to leave Fort Robinson? Uh, it's been referred to as a breakout, other terms, whatever, but but tell us a little bit more about what led to this uh, to this historical massacre. Sure. Well, um, actually, they would have been sent south earlier, but um, there was a, uh, a glitch in the supply system. Uh, the, the Army um, had to get them some clothes. They had uh, left the southern agency in the, just in the clothes they had, and they ran for two and a half months, and they were not dressed for winter travel at all. And so the uh, General Crook put in a requisition uh, to get them some clothes, and the requisition never uh, was was never um, um, filled, and uh, so they held off as long as they could, and until uh, they finally got word that the requisition uh, was going through, still going through the end stage of the process. At that point, they told the Northern Cheyenne that they would be sent south, and they all uh, protested. Um, uh, Morning Star or Dull Knife. Um, told the uh, commanding officer at Fort Robinson at that time, you might as well come in here and just club us in the head and kill us because we aren't going south. We, 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 uh, we will die down there, and we would just as soon die up here in our homeland. And Wessels, uh, Captain Wessels, uh, thought that he could persuade them um, to, to go south, and what, what he did was beginning on about the, the, the 4th or 5th of January, he cut off their heat and uh, their food uh, to try to freeze and starve them into compliance. And um, that didn't work. So um, on about January 7th, he cut off their water and um, they still refused to to go. They were reduced to scraping uh, condensation off of the window panes for water for their children. And on January 9th, he uh, decided that he would, uh, Captain Wessels decided that he would um, remove all of the, the older men who were the leaders, he considered the leaders of the group, uh, Wild Hog, uh, Strong Left Hand, and Old Crow. Um, and remove them from the, the barracks, capture them, remove them from the barracks, and then uh, he was certain that the others would comply. Well, what he did was he kind of shot himself in the foot because uh, that left the decision-making process up to a handful of, of uh, younger men who uh, weren't as um, reasonable in their decision-making process, let's put it that way. They were uh, more um, emotional, and they were, and uh, on top of that, what he did was when he arrested uh, the older men, is he brought out um, companies of soldiers, mounted soldiers and, and um, artillery, and placed them on the parade ground uh, in front of the barracks that they were being held on. So the Cheyenne were were just under extreme duress, feeling that they were going to be attacked at any moment. And what they be, 
began doing was tearing up the floorboards to create rifle pits to defend themselves. Um, and um, eventually the, the soldiers were withdrawn for the evening. Uh, things kind of quieted down a little bit in the, in the barracks. Uh, people were singing their traveling songs, their, the, the, uh, what are often called death songs, but they're actually traveling songs. And uh, they were preparing to, to be killed. And uh, uh, Wessels went to bed that evening thinking they may try to break out. They may not. He wasn't too sure. Um, but um, the young men, in fact, did set a plan up. They had uh, managed to hang on to about 15 or so rifles and, and pistols. And um, um, they set a plan to, uh, to break out. And what they did is they sh shot the guards that were uh, patrolling the barracks, uh, captured those guns, and then made a, a mass ex escape from the barracks. Um, and immediately, they, once they left the barracks, they immediately ran uh, down toward White River and Soldier Creek uh, because they were dying of thirst. And um, the soldiers uh, from uh, Barrack C, which was just right next to the barracks that the, the Northern Cheyenne were kept in, um, uh, came out of their barracks immediately and began firing on them. All right. And within the within Jerry, the we're going to have to. I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a short break here. This is just a, a fascinating history that you're recounting for us. Um, the Fort Robinson massacre, as it is known, uh, occurred January 1879. And that is our focus here on Native America Calling today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. At least one tribe in Virginia has established that state's first tribal court system, and another is in the works. Newly recognized tribes see the justice system as a way to strengthen cultural ties among their people. We'll learn about the power of tribal courts on the next Native America Calling. services. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking about the Fort Robinson Massacre today. If you have insights or questions about this event in Northern Cheyenne history, give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest, Jerry Robinson, is a Northern Cheyenne author and historian. And Jerry, going into break, uh, you gave us a really good, good, good narrative of what occurred and uh, you left off there where uh, the, the Northern Cheyenne who were being held captive there at Fort Robinson were able to break out. They ran to get water, uh, and then these troops descended on them. So tell us more, uh, the aftermath of this battle, how many survived, how many perished there, and uh, what were the long-term ramifications? 
right, looks like we don't have Jerry on the line at this present moment. I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Lynette Two Bulls into our conversation now. Again, she is the co-founder and executive director of the Yellowbird Lifeways Center and coordinator of the Fort Robinson Spiritual Run. Lynette, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, wonderful. Well, we heard from Jerry earlier uh, about the history and the context of what occurred uh, 145 years ago, but uh, you're involved with some of these healing efforts, and the 28th Annual Fort Robinson Spiritual Run just wrapped up, and uh, this is that 400-mile trek that Jerry explained from Fort Robinson, Nebraska, to the homelands in Montana. Tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for this spiritual run and what some of the highlights of this year's run were. Okay, well, uh, first first of all, thank you for um, allowing us to come on and share and to uplift the voices of of our youth runners. And, you know, I'm merely a vessel to help these youth and to help the people that come down there to um, to heal. So I, I'm the background person that does all the work and organizing, help organize it. But there's, it's a collective, you know, it's a collective of people that help put this on. And we have our drivers, chaperones, uh, the youth. And this, this run started um, in 1999 was the first year, or 1998 was the first year. And there were, it originally started after, after the Northern Cheyenne people repatriated the remains of those that were killed. They call it the last hole. So when they escaped, some of the warriors and the people ran, and they, they chased them for, you know, over a week. And they caught up with them down um, along Antelope Creek. And basically that's where they were killed. <clears throat> and they, they sent their remains to Washington, D.C. And some of the stories that we heard, everything that we do is, Yellowbird does is based on oral traditions, oral history, passing down of knowledge from our elders. And so the stories that we've heard, you know, these last 28 years, there's a lot of stories that, that the elders have shared with us. And um, one of them is that, you know, they, they sent them to D.C. to study the effects of gunpowder at close range. So those were the one of the stories that we heard, and after over a hundred years, you know, the tribe repatriated them back to Busby, Montana, and so our run begins at Fort Robinson, and that's where we end is where those remains are laid to rest there. So we honor them, we um, pay tribute to them, and our youth finish the journey that a lot of their ancestors could not because, you know, they were just wanting to come home north. And so it was um, founded by Philip Whiteman, Jr., um, Chief Philip Whiteman, Jr., um, of the Northern Cheyenne Nation here, and um, some of the elders at that time. They wanted to do something to, to remember the ancestors, to not forget. And we're told that history of forgotten will repeat itself. And that's how important history is, and that's how important this knowledge is and the sacrifice of our ancestors so that we could live. So, you know, because of their sacrifice, we now have a homeland here on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. 
um, you know, all of this area was our homeland. But <clears throat> today, you know, where we originally, they, they say they started out as prison colonies, but today we're connected to the land and we're, and th those are some of the teachings that we share with our youth. And so some of the people that, um, the first three years was a run around the reservation. So they ran to all of the communities on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. And then after that, um, some of the elders, Philip Whiteman Jr., Lee Lone Bear, who is a spiritual leader, he is gone now. Many of the elders are gone now that were with us at that time. Philip Whiteman Sr., Florence Whiteman, a um, lot of elders that are now, you know, on the other side. They were they were instrumental in in that time and creating the run. And they wanted to, along with myself at that time, they they said we want to run, we want to take youth to Fort Robinson and run home. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I'm I'm an organizer and I can pull things together and make things happen. And so so that's what I did. I started planning and, you know, all my contacts in South Dakota and um and we we took youth down there. And that first year we had a hard time finding youth to come. You know, they're like, "What are you doing? 400 miles. That's a long way." So we actually got some youth out of the the juvenile detention center that came with us those very first years. And so the first year there was 14 of us that ran, and myself included and, and Chief Philip Whiteman included as well at that time, and, um, you know, our children as well. And so we went down to Fort Robinson, and we um, went to visit, and we went to the out to the places when they escaped where they ran and the mm -hmm. bluffs. And, and heard all the stories, and elders came with us and shared the stories of what happened. And we went out to the last hole where those um, where those ones were killed that are repatriated and buried in Busby. We went out there. Okay. And the, the owner of that land today, his name is Andy Federley, he shared a story with us. He said that that um, at night and at different times he would hear cries, you know, he would hear cries. And, and, and now he tells us that since we've started coming there and acknowledging them and praying, that he no longer hears that. Is you know, that right? No longer, yeah, he shared wow. that with us. And so Lynette, we, you said, we went I'm, to I'm that sorry. place. Yeah. Quickly, so you started with, with 14 kids. How many runners were there this past year? This past year, uh, we had six vans, and there was about 90 people on the vans. And, of course, that includes the driver and the chaperone on each van. And we have a lot of youth runners, you know, that are young adults. Um, they might be in college or they're out of high school. And then we take um, ma mainly from sixth grade through high school. Okay. And especially, uh, I think the majority of them are probably all middle school. And it's a crucial age because really this Fort Robinson run is a rite of passage for them. And it's about reconnecting to our strength and our resilience and reconnecting them back to their life ways, 
you know, back to the land, when they're running 400 miles on the earth through the sacred Black Hills, through the plains of Montana, and back here north, it, it's such a powerful experience for them. And they gain pride and self-esteem for who they are because for so many years, and, and a lot of times in our school systems, they're taught to be somebody else. You know, to be successful, you have to be somebody else. You have to fit into that pyramid power structure of success. But we don't do that. You know, we reconnect them back to the resilience and that light that shines within each one of these kids. And so from the very beginning of 14 runners to now where we are, our largest year was, I think, about 130 kids. And so that's that's quite a few, you know, if you can imagine that, a moving caravan because we're yeah. moving along every day, you know, to a different location. So the growth of it has been amazing. But now, you know, we have we have a group that's usually about the same amount each year. And, and we really want to work with these kids because it's about healing from trauma. And one of our um, elders that comes along with us every year, her father was a survivor of the Fort Robinson breakout. So if you can think about that, it's, it's not that long ago, and that is Jenny Seminole Parker. So she comes down there. She came down there this year. She's 84, and even in this cold weather, like she's, she's a, a very strong woman, and she shares, you know, the stories of what her father told her. And one of the stories that she shares is she said that her dad told her, you don't know what fear is until you've been hunted, you've been hunted and chased, you know, like an animal. And um, so if you can imagine that and the trauma that was created from that fear, you know, that's the effects of trauma that we still see today. You know, there's mm -hmm. ma many um, forms of, of historical trauma from boarding schools to the massacres and everything that happened to our people. Okay. And all of these things happened in the coldest times. You know, it was strategic. Right, Whitney right. Massacre, Sand Creek, you know, Fort Robinson. You Lynette, can name all of them. Um, the way you describe it, it's just so gripping and so moving just to hear uh, you describe uh, both the history and then just what's happening currently. Uh, I, I do just want to interrupt briefly. We have a caller on the line, so we're going to go ahead and take a call now. Chanupa calling from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Okay. Chitista, Kistola, Lemonita, Hemochis, Ivanica, Nawis, Nawis. What I said in our Shahila language, Cheyenne language, Chitista language, was I always supported this run when it started. In regards to my family, a very close blood relation to the Dull Knives, Chasing Tempers, and Three Fingers. And here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, they used to come through a long time ago. And just recently, I've been catching up our brothers and sisters when they ran through Custer. Some of you took footage of mine, and I got footage of you guys when you ran through with our Strongheart banner, our Dog Soldier banner. It's red and black, and our warrior in the middle. But what I wanted to say to all of you that did participation in the Tubal family, I'm blood-related to them through Uncle Matt and Aunt Nellie. So the Tubal family are my blood, too. But one thing we'll always keep in mind that we must do 
is never forget that our people were a memorial people that lived with struggle. Ever since that white man got here, it's been nothing but chaos. And the, the sickness has enforced our people to run rapidly out of harm's way. And well, my brother, we have some runs above here in Pine Ridge too that are my blood. And so we'll be to you guys for continuing that. And next year, I'll support you guys again. And thank you for coming to Pine Ridge. Ha-ho! From Pine Ridge. Okay. Appreciate that call, Chanupa. And uh, Lynette, so Chanupa describes uh, the runners coming through Pine Ridge at one point. Uh, this is just some really, really interesting, interesting, fascinating history we're learning about in the show today. Uh, Lynette, tell us more about some of the other stops along the way during the Fort Robinson Spiritual Run and how the communities are coming out to support the runners. Yeah, so you know the the Oglala Lakota and the Cheyenne people are allies. You know, the um, Ocheti Shakomi and the, the um, Cheyenne people and the Arapaho, you know, they defeated at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, you know, Custer. And there's a strong allyship. So there's a lot of, um, today you see a lot of, a lot of Cheyenne people. They're Lakota, but they're also Cheyenne. You know, that, that's what I am. You also see a lot of Cheyenne people up here that are also Lakota people. So that allyship is really strong. And so when we come through, you know, Fort Robinson isn't that far from, from Pine Ridge, you know, the Pine Ridge Reservation. And um, our route takes us into the Black Hills. And at different times, you know, some did run towards Pine Ridge. Like um, we've heard stories that that Dull Knife or Morningstar was was hid in uh, Red Clouds with Red Cloud Chief Red Clouds um, band and his family. So those are those are stories that we heard oral stories, and so that allyship is really strong and the relationships that we have in the Oglala Sioux tribe. They feed our runners. They honor them. The Lakota people all along the way, they, they take good care of our runners and uplift their spirit and bring drum groups to sing songs for them, encouragement songs and honor songs. And it's just so beautiful to, to witness and to, to see that. And, you know, we're, we're humbled by that. It, it really yeah. does. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Lynette. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for all this background. I want to bring Jerry back into the conversation now because, Jerry, I, I do want to go back uh, and provide a little bit more historical context. So fortunately, there were survivors from Fort Robinson. Tell us what happened to those folks. Well, absolutely. Uh, actually, um, you know, picking up right where Lynette um, um, left off there, um, the survivors, uh, basically just uh, uh, women and children, uh, were taken up to the Pine Ridge Agency. Uh, Pine Ridge was basically, um, they, when the Cheyenne were sent south from the Red Cloud Agency to the Darlington Agency, the Red Cloud Agency was moved north, and it became the Pine Ridge Agency. And um, so... Th- the women and children were sent up there, but there was one notable um, person who wound up there, uh, and that was Morningstar or Dull Knife, who was taken in 
uh, actually by my um, my great great grandfather William Rowland, who was a white man um, and was acting as interpreter. Um, he had married into the Cheyenne tribe in 1849, um, and William Rowland took him took Morningstar and and his family to the lodge of Little Big Man, and Little Big Man took them in, and that was where uh, Morningstar recuperated. Uh, he had uh, two toes on his left foot frozen off, and um, uh, he actually did an interview um, uh, with a uh, correspondent from one of the newspapers at that time, and he tells the story of, of the, the breakout and his experience afterwards. Um, okay. Jerry, uh, I'm sorry. We're going to have to take another break here. Uh, we come back. We're going to talk more with Jerry Robinson, Lynette Tubles, and also Denise Loiso. Stay with us. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org who support this show. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and today we're focusing on the Fort Robinson Massacre. Every year, members of the Northern Cheyenne run 400 miles from Nebraska to Montana in honor of their ancestors who were killed or captured by U.S. soldiers. Does your tribe host an event or a run in honor of ancestors, battles, or historical legacies? Still time to join us by calling 1-800-996-2848 that's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Jerry Robinson, one of our guests uh, on the line right now. And Jerry, before break, you were telling us uh, a description of the Fort Robinson Massacre. Go ahead, please continue that train of thought. And also, I'd like to learn more about uh, this trail and a monument and other healing efforts that are being undertaken by the Journey Home Committee, of which you were a part of. Absolutely. Uh, first, just to check to see if I made it back from the break this time. Yeah, we can hear you great, Jerry. Go ahead. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So, yeah, so we were talking about the survivors um, that uh, were were taken up to um, uh, Pine Ridge Agency, and uh, they were kept there for some time. Now, uh, the band um, uh, under Morningstar is, or Dull Knife is what happened, or, or were involved in this, in the breakout here. Um, just a little correction on some terminology that you used before the last break or after the last break. You described it as a battle, and I don't, I don't term it uh, as a battle. It was basically they were trying to run for their lives is what they were doing. They weren't uh, too interested in engaging in a, in a full-on battle. They set okay. up a defensive line and ran for the rivers. Jerry, um, I appreciate that clarification because um, – Originally, that was how the event was described by U.S. soldiers, right? This battle against hostile Indians. But that narrative has changed in recent years uh, over time, both by your efforts and others. Right. And that's what we're trying to do. Right now, if you, if you go on to the Fort Robinson uh, parade ground there, there's a sign that describes what happened that night as a battle. And... Um, I'm involved in uh, a project called the Northern Cheyenne Healing Trail, and it's been ongoing for about 20-some years. 
I've been involved in it for the last uh, six years or so. But it evolved out of, uh, again, uh, a couple of our elders, um, uh, Rosie Eagle Feathers and Edna Seminole, taking a trip out with um, Edna's uh, son, Vincent White Crane, uh, to Fort Robinson. They had never been there before. And uh, they were just really surprised at the lack of recognition that the breakout uh, received there at the fort. And uh, there was one sign that had bullet holes in it that, that, that discussed the, the, the breakout. They called it an outbreak as if it was some sort of a virus or something. Um, and what they, what they decided to do is they, they uh, felt like we need better recognition. We need to hear, have the Cheyenne story told here by Cheyenne people. And so they, uh, the next trip they came down, they brought some rocks from uh, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation and placed them at us on a spot. They said, we're going to have a monument here. This is where we want the monument to, to be to recognize this, this, um, this uh, sacrifice by our ancestors. And it's at the base of the buttes that were climbed over about 500-foot-tall sandstone bluffs that, that uh, um, those uh, with, that made it up to the last hole had climbed over. And so in 2016, that monument was dedicated. Uh, my brother Major and others, Vincent, uh, uh, Edna, uh, were there uh, for that commemoration. And um, after that, Edna told, uh, told the committee, we aren't done. Uh, we're going to build a, a trail that goes from the barracks to this monument, and we're going to tell the story, and we're going to uh, make it a healing trail. It's about healing. And I think that that's an important uh, part of this project. It's it's not related to the run, uh, but we certainly uh, welcome the 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 effort um, by the run by the you know the children to to be educated on this on this trail. And what we hope is to not only recognize those who were involved in the breakout and and everything that happened uh, during that time, but we also want to educate um, the visitors about what it was that our ancestors fought so desperately for to come back here. And it was, it was for their culture, for their tradition, for the land, for this place that they love, that they called home. And so the trail will tell the story of the breakout, but it'll also recognize um, and, and educate people on uh, Northern Cheyenne culture and ceremony and um, okay. Hopefully, in the process, create some understanding. And, and Jerry, this is this trail is about three and a half miles, uh, and it's there in that area of Nebraska where Fort Robinson once stood. Is that right? Correct. And we're still in the process of planning it. Uh, we've 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 um, received a, a couple uh, pretty good grants that we're using to um, do some concept work and. Uh, it won't be long before we're ready for construction, probably another year and a half or so. Um, it's quite, quite beautiful. It's, it's really, uh, it, it's really uh, hopefully what we're hoping to do is honor our ancestors uh, right. at the same time educating the next generations and not only Northern Cheyenne, but anyone who travels that trail so that what we, can, what we achieve is, is the process of healing. We don't want this to be about finger pointing and anger and resentment. Um, the, it's time for the Northern Cheyenne people to move forward 
And in order to move forward, we need to resolve a lot of the, the issues from our past. And right. so that's what this is hopefully uh, going to help us to do. Jerry, At really appreciate point, uh, all of this sure. background. Uh, yeah, it just sounds like uh, a beautiful monument and also the trail as well. And uh, let's talk more uh, about the survivors of the Fort Robinson breakout. And our next guest, Denise Loiso. Again, Denise, I appreciate you joining us today. You're an educator, and uh, you wrote this book about Northern Cheyenne Ledger Art by uh, survivors of the Fort Robinson massacre. Um, what was it like? What was the life like for some of the jailed survivors there at Fort Robinson? Well, I um, first, I am so moved by all the stories I'm hearing, and, and thank you, thank you. I think of these of all of the people there as heroes, and specifically the seven men who survived with terrible injuries who were taken by the military to Kansas to stand trial. And uh, among them uh, were uh, Tangle Hair, Strong Left Hand, Old Crow, Porcupine, Wild Hog, Noisy Walker, and Blacksmith. And, you know, uh, Old Crow had his hand shot off, and they were in terrible shape. They were taken to uh, Dodge City and expected to be hanged. There were six other male men who survived who were uh, sent into Red Cloud Agency, presumably because they had more Lakota connections. But in uh, these seven survivors were expected to be killed. They were transferred to civil court. And they, a, a volunteer lawyer stepped forward from Salina, Kansas, and eventually got them all dismissed. And so they were sent down to Darlington Agency for a few years, back up to Red Cloud or Pine Ridge, and then eventually ended up in, most of them went over to the Northern Cheyenne and helped uh, found the reservation there. And each one of them uh, helped to contribute their knowledge of culture, their understanding and uh, leadership uh, during those difficult reservation era years. And we, our, our book, we really try to emphasize, you know, follow them up, what happened afterwards? How did they, Porcupine was very involved as a leader, a spiritual leader um, for decades. And many of these men, despite all the trauma and physical uh, and, and things they had to endure. They lived to be 80 or so and became contributors to how the reservation would be shaped in the future and uh, what what survival means in terms of political and also spiritual dimensions. One of the things I really am inspired by is how they use drawings. And um, in, in this funny, odd story, Bat Masterson, the gunfighter, was the sheriff in Dodge City at that time. And he was acquainted with some of these leaders who had come down through Dodge City on the way to Darlington Agency. And, and so when they came into his jurisdiction and his Ford County, Kansas jail, he was familiar with them, and he allowed them dry materials and tobacco. So they were able to pray and to uh, make drawings. And we have four books, booklets of their drawings 
that they used as gifts to the jailkeeper's wife, who was a good cook. Um, <laughs> they um, they gambled with some of the other um, prisoners in the jail at the time, and we we assume that one one of the books at least ended up as uh, paying off their poker debt. Um, and then one was given to the court clerk, and and just these this generosity, this this idea of even though though they were physically terribly in pain and had been through, they had lost family members, they were in deep grief, yet they found the courage to enter the future and to share their. Um, knowledge to to use what what they did have as spiritual resources, and to create a way to um, continue to live, and to pass on their knowledge. Right, just amazing that in the midst of all this turmoil and tragedy and suffering, that they still uh, were able to create beautiful artwork that that stands the test of time. Just amazing. Now, Denise, uh, you have a co-author that assisted with this book. Tell us about your, uh, your partner. Uh, well, Raymond Powers, uh, was, uh, director of the Kansas State Historical Society and there, which is a library and a history society. And he was aware, he became aware that two of these books had ended up in that library as gifts eventually um, and so he had been intrigued by that and because he is from um, that part of kansas uh gove county he and and he helped me coordinate with the scott city commemoration of the punished woman canyon involvement in that uh, horrible tragedy and so we went out there. Uh, Clinton Birdhat was there telling very moving stories and had brought some folks down from uh, the reservation. So he's very familiar with that uh, geography. He grew up there. I grew up further east in the grasslands of Kansas. And we both feel connected to that land and, and to all the stories that go with that land. Denise, what can you tell us about the ledger art pieces that are in the book? Are, are, are there some that really stand out? And if you could maybe describe some of the images for our listeners. Um, these are different from most of the ledger art that, that one sees. These are groups of people dancing. Uh, the, there are a lot of pictures of animals uh, but of the region, particularly uh, females with uh, babies, and including, um, let's see, you know, like th there are buffalo and elk with, uh, you know, different configurations. There are a lot of there are a number of courtship scenes, and. There are uh, scenes of men and women on horseback. What there are not is too many images of battles, you know. There are a few scenes of individual warriors in their regalia, but uh, there are only five combat scenes with Crow. And uh, so they, they were being strategic in what they depicted. 
And there are also some spiritual images of, um, you know, uh, spiritual beings that one does not usually see often in or ever in ledger art. So I really feel that they were creating spiritual images and and they all missed their wives and children. And so I think they were evoking the, there are a lot of, groups of uh, women in fancy Navajo blankets Mm. (laughs) that I assume are the wives, you know. Right, right. Denise, are any of these images available online? Yes, all of them are online at Plains Indian Ledger Art, PILA.org, P-I-L-A.org. And um, Norman Frank maintains this website and, you know, like it's then really hard to reproduce color on paper. And so one of the gifts of the Internet, along with the problems, is the ability to see all these images. And I think there are up to 45 ledger art books that are now completely scanned and available at this website maintained by uh, University of California, San Diego. Well, Denise, really appreciate you joining the conversation along with Jerry and Lynette as well. And today we have learned a lot about the Fort Robinson massacre that occurred 145 years ago, January 1879. I want to encourage our listeners to uh, comment on this show. Tell us what you learned. Tell us what was most impactful. Tell us what moved you uh, about the stories we heard today as well as the history lesson that we received from our wonderful guests. NativeAmericaCalling.com or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. You can comment that way as well. Tomorrow we're back with a look at the establishment of the first tribal court system in Virginia. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day. I'm Sean Spruce. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Yatehoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodisbahoyatodis